Hello, my name is Walter Stevens, founder of Gypsy Outreach Ministries International and missionary to my own people, the Gypsies. In 1990, led by the Blessed Holy Spirit, driven with a passion for Christ and the Roma souls he died for, we pioneered the first outreach to the Gypsy people in Ohio at the Cleveland Baptist Church under the leadership of Dr. Roy Thompson. This was the first attempt to reach Roma by Baptist of any type anywhere in the world. God has blessed this ministry in many ways. Souls have been saved, gypsies have come out of fortune telling and the more deceptive practices of business and now have a passion to reach others with the gospel. One of the greatest evidences of God's hand of blessing being upon this work is the precious missionary couple that God gave us to shepherd this ministry. Lawrence and Sally Evans. Sister Evans went home to be with her Savior in 2016. But Brother Lawrence faithfully continues his God-called ministry to the Roma people without his precious Sally by his side. Brother Evans has been faithful to the Roma work in Cleveland since 1997 under the leadership of the current pastor, Pete Folger. Lawrence is also a full-blooded gypsy with a burning desire to fulfill his call to his own people. Lawrence's salvation testimony is one of great deliverance by the grace of God from the bondage of Roma carnality. Lawrence is our second generation gypsy preacher. He is one of only four full-blooded gypsy Baptist preachers in America. He is also a graduate of the Heritage Bible Institute and served with gypsy outreach for several years before taking the leadership position. He has made several trips into Eastern Europe in helping missionaries work among the gypsy people there. Lawrence's desire is to reach his people with the gospel by establishing new works to Roma wherever God opens the door and by helping others to do the same. He is a gifted preacher and lover of the word of God. Many Roma have been saved, baptized, and discipled under his teaching and preaching. He is currently reaching the Roma of Southwest Florida. Roma, as they are known in English-speaking countries as the Gypsies, are one of the most mysterious, secretive, and misunderstood ethnic groups who have been scattered all over the world and in almost every country. According to National Geographic, the worldwide Gypsy population has been estimated at 40 million. The highest concentration of Roma would be found in the former communist countries of Eastern Europe. The United States government estimates their number at one million. Known by a variety of derogatory names in different countries of the world, such as the Tsigan, Zigoine, Giftos, and Hitanos, all meaning about the same thing, untouchable. These people have been history's most hated and persecuted ethnic group. Alongside Europe's Jews, 600,000 gypsies were slaughtered and eliminated by Nazi Germany. But the gypsies have survived, as survival is a part of their cultural makeup. But this survival has come at a very high price, the price of sin. As a direct result of ethnic hatred and persecution, they have resorted to stealing, fortune-telling, and begging for their survival. So much of what we hear about this secret race is negative. 
How can we reach a people with the gospel that we are not sure genuinely exist? Why would we? For the gypsy myth has been handed down from one generation to another, fueled by Hollywood's gypsy fortune teller of wolfman movies, or as characters of fairy tales and nursery rhymes. A people kept secret and elusive by the enemy of their souls, Satan, who has held the Roma soul hostage for centuries. Now the Roma are a different kind of untouchable, untouched by the good news of Jesus Christ. But by the love and grace of God, this tragedy is changing for lost gypsy souls all over the world. Uh, what you're seeing right now is the completion of Sally's Kitchen. We were there in 2017 once again, and we had a dedicational service for that kitchen. People from uh, Nuremberg, Germany came, uh, gypsy pastors and also gypsy pastors and deacons in that Romania area came. We feed to uh, 50 kids a day, uh, five days out of the week. And uh, what you see is money that is given to us from churches like you. That we do also a Christmas fund. We raise about $25 uh, a month uh, every year to send uh, a gift for Christmas. This is Ukrainian gypsies. This is where you guys sent $500 to uh, supply a week's food for them. And these gypsies were uh, driven, going after from Romania to the Ukraine border, picked up in those vans, several, a few vans, and they brought them back to Romania in their village. And this is once again the purchase of the items that they needed to uh, to have with that week and the second week. Uh, these gypsies were persecuted also in Ukraine too. They were persecuted. They're treated, whatever you're going to see right now is Ukrainian refugee gypsies in Romania. As you can see, one of the young girls asked me how they dress. Uh, they dress very colorful, as you can see. They're dressed for centuries in Europe. And they kind of changed that when they came to the United States. They wanted to blend in. They took too much notice by dressing like that. And people were easily to peg them out as gypsies. So, but uh, these folk, uh, these Roma people... Uh, we know that uh, disappointments turn out to be blessings. Unfortunately, the war was in, is in Ukraine. But these people, when they came over, were presented with the gospel, and they got saved. Many got saved, and uh, many also have fallen in believers' baptism. And uh, once again, we could not do this without churches like you who support us in, in this missionary endeavor. And uh, just people searching for love. That's all they're searching is to be accepted and be loved. And uh, and only we just show a little kindness to them, doors will open and we see fruit of everyone's prayer and finances and labor. And uh, they want to go back. <clears throat> they do want to go back. I talked to Gitsa Feketa, who's the guy furthest to the left. He's a gypsy pastor for all four churches in that area. And uh, he's told me that their desire is to go back to Ukraine, but right now they can't. Because they, their dwellings are all bombed and they have no place to be. So right now, that's the medical building preacher right there. That's the medical building that they're housed in. And uh, uh, so, but unfortunately, we can't house all people there. So other people are going to other, we have a dormitory in one of our churches for the Bible students. And they sleep in the dormitory also. 
uh, they took that advantage to be upstairs there. So, but uh, this is what you're going to see. Uh, these are the Ukrainian gypsies in church, and several came to know Christ as their savior. So, when uh, I believe it was, uh, there's a reason for everything. Reason for everything. Now, at least we know these are on their way to heaven. Those accepted Christ, though they had to go a long way to do it, and a hardship, but they accepted Lord Jesus Christ as, as their Savior. Sally's Kitchen was was always planned, always wanted to do something for the gypsies. Sally would take her souvenir money and give her whatever she could to buy kids things. The kids were ousted out of the mom and pop shops with a kick in the in the rear. They were ousted out, the gypsy kids. But when Sally seen that, she would take them back into the kit, into the mom and pop shop, and and the people didn't know Sally was a Rom. Uh, they thought she was a Romanian European lady, and they would throw the kids out, but she would get them back, and they would pick out what they want. So one day, Sally asked me, Lawrence, is there something we could do in a greater way for these kids to feed them, because their parents are not giving that given that blessed opportunity to work for a good pay. And I said, Sally, we're missionaries. Uh, what it takes to feed a village of 1,700 people, there's no way we could do it. And I said, maybe one day we'll do it, uh, as the Lord says. But who knew? Only God knew, because he knows everything. I didn't know. God used the death of my wife to, uh, to institute that, instigate that. And before Sally passed away, he said, the last thing that will go is your hearing. The last thing that will go is your hearing. So I knew that by her already. So when the, the Lord just impressed my heart to start a feeding center in her memory and to call it Sally's Kitchen, because that's always what she wanted to do was to feed the kids. So I went to Sally and I said, Sally, we're going to start a feeding center uh, in your memory in Romania and we're going to call it Sally's Kitchen. When she smiled ear to ear, she knew that was going to be done. So I, I uh, she passed away, of course, on May 16th of of May the, that just uh, earlier this month, six years, and um, I went to Romania in May 16th. I mean, in, in the May, month of May, I went to Romania. And me, me and Brother Gita found a town called Kalacha, which that town already had an existing little church. And by the way, preacher, I'm sorry, where I, I, I made a mistake. That's the fifth church. That's the fifth church in Kalacha. And uh, so I, I knew after I was preaching, people were getting saved. We, it was jam, uh, like sardines, and, and I said, we need a bigger church. So I said, Gitsa, when we build Sally's kitchen, let's extend the foundation by faith that we're going to build a larger church because many people are going to get saved. They're going to hear the gospel in Sally's kitchen and get saved. Well, it happened. People got saved. People got baptized. People were discipled. So they started to use the kitchen dual purpose, Sally's kitchen and also the church on Sunday. But we knew that wasn't enough because more people were coming. So we built the church adjacent to that. And the kitchen was completed in 2000, late 2017. But I had a problem. I thought I couldn't do it. I was in Dublin, Ireland for six hour layover. And uh, after I left uh, Romania, we had a layover in Dublin. And I kind of chatted with the Lord on my seat. Six hours, you think a lot setting down, you know, not doing anything else in the airport. And I said, Lord, what did I get myself into? I'm in a pickle. There's no raise. There's no way I can raise $15,000. That's what it costs. $15,000 to erect a feeding center. I said, there's no 
way I could do it. And let alone to have a thousand dollars a month for feeding. And I said, there's no way I could do it. And I had a big mistake. And the Lord just impressed my heart right there in Dublin, Ireland. He pressed my heart about George Mueller. George Mueller started the London orphanages in England. He didn't have any money. Though his family was very wealthy, he wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't have any money. And I see an autobiography on a CD. A missionary friends in Slovakia brought that CD to us before he passed away several months. And God impressed my heart. Just as I was with George Mueller in the 1800s, I'll be with you in the 21st century. He didn't speak to me audibly. He just impressed my heart. Why well, I stood up off my seat and raised both my hands to Jesus. And those people, man, thought I was crazy. Some got away from me. But that's okay. I don't mind it. That's cool. And that week, I flew back to the United States. That day, I flew back to the United States. The following day, at a missions conference to preach in upstate New York. And I went there to that missions conference. They gave me $2,800 to start the process of building Sally's Kitchen. In six weeks, God raised $15,000. Six weeks. I didn't have to say anything. They knew our testimony. They knew our desire. People heard about it. And they started to send money at Cleveland Baptist Church. So, in seven months, $30,000 was raised. And within seven months. And that extra money went to the new church. Amen? That extra money. So that's what you see today. Thank you so much for being part of this ministry. Uh, I love preaching to my people. I love having church. I love being a missionary. I love being a minister of the gospel. But one of my greatest things is Sally's Kitchen. It's very close to my heart. And uh, once again, thank you all. Uh, and uh, for everything that you do, I really appreciate it. On this side of heaven, you may not all know the appreciation, but I can assure you one day when you get to heaven, you'll know it all. Amen? Come with me to Romans chapter 2 as we continue to study through the book of Romans. I thought one more thing. I thought about... I have a sermon prepared. This is the sermon I prepared as I was listening to the last song. Uh, I got another one too, but... I thought about it, that, that song we sang, Above All, Jesus was thinking about us, and I had to be convicted a little bit about in all my preparation for coming to church this morning, how much of my mind was thinking about him? And how much of your attention was about him? As opposed to everything I had to get ready and everything I had to get prepared and everything that I had to do when ultimately he was on the cross and each and every day. If we could count, what does it say? If we could count his thoughts toward us, it says the sand of the sea. So let's get our attention focused on him. Well, in Romans chapter 2, we continue the series, Good News for Broken Worlds. We know our theme verse is this, Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. We're speaking in the book of Romans about the good news in this broken world. Things don't always look right when you scroll through your social media feed. Things don't always look right when you listen to cable news. But the answer for this broken world is the good news of our Savior Jesus. And that's what gospel means. And the gospel theme is all throughout the book of Romans. So we've been, this is our third or fourth message in the series, and we come to uh, verse 17. If you remember last week, we were in the first 16 verses of chapter 2 in Romans, and we talked about gospel freedom. 
We talked about the idea that, that even for people that don't know they need to be set free, the gospel is the good news that brings freedom. We looked at and we compared it with the statement of Jesus. If you remember, because I'm going to do it again this morning, you remember the book of Romans is a bit easier to understand when you compare it to some of the encounters that are recorded in Jesus' life. I'm going to do that one more time this morning. But if you remember last week, it was Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you what? Free. But the people that he said that to, they didn't respond by saying, oh, that's great, set us free. They actually responded by saying, we don't want you to set us free. We don't need to be set free. And so we looked at the book of Romans and how it, it just breaks the chains of our self-righteousness. It breaks the chains of our self-confidence and shows us how the gospel is good news to set us free. Well, today it's a little bit different. In the, in the book of Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is speaking one by one to different groups of people. Different groups of people have different hang-ups when it comes to the gospel. They have different obstacles and walls that have to come down. And so today, look at a group of people who are all wrapped up in their identity and who they are. You know, identity has become a bit of a buzzword. How many of you have heard that word going around a lot these days? Identity. People talk about political identities and racial identities and sexual identities. Identity, identity, identity. It's all over philosophy, education. It's something people speak a lot about. What is an identity? I thought we should start with that, just kind of get a baseline for what we're talking about today. What is an identity? We could go around the room and you could probably give some good insight, but for sake of time, let me give you this. And this is on the front bottom page uh, of your, the bottom of the front page of your notes. Our identity is a foundational belief about the nature of who we are and how we relate to others and ourselves. So, Brother Evans, for the first 30 or 20-something, 30 years of your life, your primary identity, you were a... <laughs> a gypsy, Roma. And that was... And, and that's your identity. For you, you may say something else. That is your identity. It's a foundational belief about who you are, how you relate to others, and even how you relate to yourself. Now, in previous generations, people didn't think a whole lot about their identity. It, wasn't, it was just something that you inherited. It was something that was just given to you. You're in this family. You're part of these people. That's kind of a traditional identity structure. This is just who we are. But in today's very individualistic society, people are given the opportunity not to inherit an identity, but to actually create their own identity. Now, which is worse, an inherited identity or a self-created identity? That's my trick question of the morning. Because the fact of those, the fact is this, both of those are weak and insufficient identities. What's happened, I'm just framing the message from the beginning, and then we'll get right into the text. What's happened is this, a whole cultural shift has happened where people said, wait a minute, I don't have to be who they say I am. I don't have to be who my parents say and who my culture says, and I don't have to be this way because I'm not going to let other people define my life. How many of you went through some kind of a crisis like that at some point in your life? You said, you know what, I'm not going to let other people define me. And so they come all the way over here, they march over here, and they say what? I 
will define me. I will create my own truth. Either way, we're dealing with a man-made, constructed identity. It's either something somebody gave you, or it's something that you decided upon yourself. The scriptures are about to get ready. They're going to demolish those identity structures and replace it. Replace it with a new and wonderful identity in Christ. So are you ready to go? Let's do it. Look at verse number 17. This is a really bold and kind of in-your-face statement to begin this section of the chapter. Behold, that attention word. Hey, wake up. Pay attention. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law. Now, you might be here today and say, oh, okay, this one isn't for me. And in some ways, you'd be correct. However, we're going to learn something about this. Say, what is Paul doing? Well, as I said, you're studying this passage with us. Little by little, Paul is addressing all kinds of people groups. Previously, he talked about Gentiles. He talks about Jews. He talks about moral people. He talks about immoral people. He addresses pagans. He addresses Jews. So we come to the part where he wants to draw special attention to the people group that he's dealing with that have a lot of confidence in their identity. Just think about it, that statement, thou art called a Jew. Thou art called a Jew. Well, what kind of people would he be speaking to? You're like, uh, uh Jewish? Yeah, that would be correct. But unpack that a little further. What is, what is, let's look, number one, at the construction of the self-identity. These are people that would identify as, and very proudly, as being Jewish. Well, it's an ethnic identity. They come from a chosen bloodline. There were laws governing their intermarriage. In fact, they were called from the days of Abraham to Moses. They were God's chosen people. They were to be a special people to themselves. So these, they would have viewed themselves very strongly as being among the chosen bloodline. That would be their identity. There's an ethnic identity. There is a cultural identity. They have traditions. A, a super traditionalist culture. They ate certain foods. They went certain places. They behaved certain ways. So they've got a ethnic, an ethnic identity. They've got a cultural identity. And then in that statement, thou are called a Jew, they have a very strong religious identity. Now, when you think about it, it's not very different than maybe your parents' and grandparents' identities. Let me just back up in, in America, in American culture, or European culture, wherever you come from. The fact is this, people, you, people were very proud of their bloodline, were they not? Now that, and I understand some of that's going away, but you're, you're kind of thinking, well, people are very proud of, this is who I come from. These are my people. People are very proud of their cultural traditions and view them as superior to others. And the religious component is fascinating because including the, the, what the Jewish religion had turned into, this isn't how it started, but what it had turned into in Paul's day is the very, it's, it bears a similarity with every religious identity that exists even today. You say, well, how could that be? They have different places of worship, different customs, 
different deities even, but they all, all religions of years gone by and of today, they all have this one same thing in common, and that is what I'm going to refer to as works righteousness. Works righteousness. That if you will be a good enough person, if you will perform the religious deeds, if you will do everything you're supposed to do, then you will earn favor with whoever your God is. That's the identity. And to this crowd that Paul is speaking to, he says, you rest in the law, you make your boast of God, you have strong identity. In fact, let's read on a little bit as he unpacks this identity for them. He says in verse 17, behold, thou art called a Jew. He says, you rest in the law. What does that mean, that they're resting in the law? It's as if they're saying, you know what? I'm okay. I'm all right because we have this law. So they're just going to step back and say, you know what? So that idea of resting in is they're putting their confidence in. Putting their confidence in. In fact, it goes on. He says, you're resting in the law. And then it says, make as I boast of God and knowest his will and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. He says, you are living up to that identity perfectly. I mean, you're checking off all the boxes. You know the law. You have confidence in the law. You're following all these things. And he says now in verse 19, and art, what's the word? You're confident. Confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Do you see how he sets up their identity and the self-confidence that they have and who they are and what they know? You see several themes in there. They're, as we mentioned, the ethnic component, but also their knowledge of the law, their beliefs about God. And they literally were so confident that they would say, in fact, all of you all have a lot to learn from us. That's their, that's their viewpoint. They're so confident in their standing before God. They're so confident in what they have accomplished that they say, you know what? You all could learn a thing or two from us. Do you think it was the Jew people that had a monopoly as kind of attitude? Of course not. You can find this in any religious group. You can find this in social structures. You can find this among the uh, intelligentsia of our day. You can find this among the educated class. You can find this... Really, wherever there are people, there are those that are very secure in their identity. This is who we are, and we are proud of it. It's human nature. We know, we understand. Now, as I shared with you last week, I personally consider jumping into the book of Romans as like diving into the, it's like going into the deep end. Right? I mean, there's, there's, there's some difficult concepts here. And what's helped me is thinking about what Paul's writing and then remembering back to some of the things that Jesus talks about. Because Jesus demonstrated these teachings 
And then the Apostle Paul expounded on them. So as we think about people or individuals who are very confident in their, confident in their identity, I thought, you know something? There's actually a case study in this in the Gospels. And many of you are familiar with this individual. His name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the exact person that Paul is scribing in this chapter. Thou art called a Jew, an instructor of the blind. You know, you know. Well, there was a man in John chapter 3 of the Pharisees named, help me out, named Nicodemus, a, not just a Jew, thou that callest thyself a Jew, remember that from Paul, not just a Jew, but a what? A ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. You talk about people with a strong sense of identity, the Pharisees had it. They're confident in who they are. A ruler of the Jews. Now, he was resting in the law, but in his resting, there was a little bit of restlessness. Because this self-confident man had heard the teachings of Jesus. He'd been exposed to Jesus. I want you to see right now how he approaches Jesus. Watch the approach. The same came to Jesus when? I don't want anybody else to see this. I don't want anybody to question my... But you see the chinks in the armor. Back door at night, none of his buddies watching, because it wouldn't be... It, it, in his circles, it wouldn't be culturally acceptable to be seen conversing with Jesus, but we think there was probably a, a segment of the Pharisees who were curious about Jesus. So he comes to Jesus by night. Now I want you to see the self-confidence that Nicodemus begins with. Look at all his self-confidence. Rabbi, we know... That's an interesting statement right there. We've had a, we've had a discussion. We had a meeting. And we've come to some conclusions about you, Jesus. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be what? With him. Nicodemus has come to Jesus filled with his own identity. He's come to Jesus filled with his own idea of who he is and who Jesus is. Does he understand who Jesus is? He doesn't. He's beginning to, but he doesn't. Doesn't understand. And what is about to happen? What's about to happen? Nicodemus comes to Jesus, confident in control, but Jesus is about to flip the script. And this careful identity that has been constructed for Nicodemus, Jesus is about to deconstruct it. He's going to take it right down. In fact, Let's see how this works out. Go, go, back to, uh, go back to Romans chapter 2. Let me show you this next section. We'll come back to our friend Nicodemus in just a minute. But let's leave him self-assured and self-confident just for a few minutes, okay? Now go back to Romans 2, and let's see this, this next point here, which is gospel deconstruction. So Paul addressed this group of Jews in, in verses 17 down through verse 20, 
Now look what happens in verses 21 through verse 27. The Apostle Paul is going to deconstruct their Jewish identity. He's going to show them and he's going to show us this. That failure to live up to the expectations of others or myself leads to defeat and disillusionment. Okay, what does that mean? Let's go back to our opening illustration. People over here, their identity came from where? Do you remember the people over here, where their identity come from? Their family, their history, whatever. So they're inheriting all this, and pretty soon, their dad, their mom, grandma, aunts and uncles, they have a lot of expectations for them. And when they can't live up to those expectations, what happens? Self-doubt, self-defeat, insecurity. So they make that transition and they come over here and they construct their own identity. But now who sets those expectations? Yeah, I heard it. Who does? Themselves. They do. And at first everything's going well. But do, can people even live up to their own expectations of themselves? No. And that's why in a culture where the schools and the education and the, and the media tells young people, hey, you are a superstar. You be whoever you want to be. You live out their truth. And people eat it up and they say, that's right. I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to do my thing. They do it for a little while and all of a sudden they realize, I'm not as good as I thought I was. I can't even live up to my own expectations of myself. The Bible actually, the Apostle Paul actually speaks to those people. Look, look with me here at what happens in verse 21. He speaks to these very confident Jews and he says this, verse 21, Thou therefore, thou therefore, which teachest another, do you teach yourself? You're so good at teaching other people, are you teaching yourself? You preach that a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Who else? Did Jesus preach like this at one point? Like in a very famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually, the parallels, I've just been, I've never seen this in the book of Romans until now. These parallels between the teachings of Jesus expounded by Paul are amazing. Jesus taught this way. He says, you think you're so good because you don't commit adultery. What did Jesus say? If you've committed it in your mind. Here's, here's the Apostle Paul unpacking this more. And he's saying, you rest in the law. You teach other people. But have you ever stopped to teach yourself? What happens is the gospel, while it's good news, it also reveals our hypocrisy. That who we think we are, who we want everyone else to think we are. Would you, can you imagine if we had a, and this came from our uh, Wednesday night series, Christianity Explored, which I'd encourage you to come to. We're having a great time. Commercial over. Anyway, back on the message. So, if... If all of the thoughts of your mind, just from the last few days, if we could visually put them on the screen for everyone to watch, we would say, sure, put all my thoughts up there. It's moments where we must be, who we, we have these concepts of our identity. Well, I'm a good person. Or I'm a, I'm a kind person. I'm a, I'm a whatever. You fill in the blank. I'm this, I'm that. Paul says, did you ever stop and look at your own life and ask yourself the questions? Are you really? 
They say, but this is kind of painful. People need to be built up. People need to be encouraged. Absolutely. But not in their false identity structures. We need the anything that's going to lead us to ruin or destruction or despair. It's all got to be torn down so something new can be built in its place. So, the gospel reveals our hypocrisy. There's a hypocrisy of the heart, but then notice what happens next. There's a hypocrisy of comparison. So in the first few verses here, you say somebody shouldn't do this, but are you doing it? Are you committing those very same things? Let's skip down to verse number 23. Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, are dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Now, verse 25, just read it, think about it, and we'll, we'll make a couple comments on it. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. All right, that's a bit of a complicated statement right there. What, 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 how do we get into circumcision here? What's going on? Aside from the medical practice of circumcision, and the practice of circumcision, for the Jewish audience that would hear this, circumcision was the one word that defined their cultural identity. Yes, it was a practice for all the young baby boys, but that, it, it meant more to them than that. It was a cultural identifier. It was an identity marker that we are circumcised. We belong to God. We have special status. We are okay. We are rock solid. We are secure. But, but this is going on in your heart, but your behavior is like this, but, but it's okay. It's okay because I was baptized when I was a baby. Oh, I'm sorry. Because I was circumcised when I was a baby. That was an intentional slip. Right? Because religious cultures and all, all these identities tell us, well, yes, there's something fundamentally wrong with us, but it's okay because, because of this. And, and Paul says, no, it's not okay. Your circumcision doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything if you're breaking the law. If thou be breaker of the law, the circumcision is made uncircumcision. Now look at this. Now this is where, this is like the most painful blow of all. You talk about deconstructing someone's identity. This is insult of insults to the Jewish audience. Verse number next. Where are we? Verse 26. Therefore, if the what? The uncircumcision. What do you mean? The Gentiles. To the Jewish audience. Ugh. The Gentiles. And he says, you know something? Speaking to the Jewish audience, you know something? Some of the Gentiles, they keep the law better than you Jews do. Ugh. Oh. Now, I know this isn't our context. We're not in this exact situation, I know. But that's exactly what it does to every person's identity. You're so self-righteous, so self-confident, but what about that thought? about your neighbor next door? What about the way you treated that person at the grocery store the other day? What about that, 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 the way you look down on that other person? You say you're so enlightened. You say that you're so open-minded. But, but really? Ugh. That's, that's the sword of the Spirit. He said, 
Shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? There's a hypocrisy of my heart. There's a hypocrisy of comparison. And this is it. Before, it's, it was Francis Schaeffer who said this, that before people can see the glory of the gospel, they have to be brought to the point of their despair. They have to see where their life is heading before they can understand the good news of the gospel. And that's what the message of the word does. It breaks it all down. And so he says, you're in your own heart, there's hypocrisy. And then if you just compare yourself to those around you. And by the way, this is why no identity will ever work outside of a gospel identity. Because your family defines you, you'll never live up to their expectations, would you? Don't raise your hand. But how many of you have had a family's expectations? You just never could live up to them. Could be a domineering father or mother. It doesn't matter. You're never being what they want you to be. So you come over here and you say, I'm going to be who I am. But then you look, you look at your own heart and you say, yeah, but I'm not as good as I think I am. And then you look at other people and you're like, oh, yeah, but some of them are better than me. It's an endless trap and a downward spiral. And God is gracious and good enough to show us where that leads and to break it down. Same thing happened in Nicodemus. Let's go back. Let's go back to our friend Nicodemus, see where he's at. So he comes to Jesus by night. He goes to Jesus and says, oh, we know who you are. And Jesus flips the script. So remember the previous conversation? We unpause the video. They all come back to life. We rewind five seconds just to get the story. Back up, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is back up. And he says, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these miracles except God be with him. Jesus just looks at him very calmly, I believe, and very, very assured. He looks at him and he says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's like Jesus needed a lesson in how to win friends and influence people. Right? He's supposed to reaffirm Nicodemus. He's supposed to say, oh, well, thank you for the kind words, Nicodemus. I want to thank you for, those, for your high opinion of me. He doesn't do that. It's, he just changes the conversation. He looks at him. And in a way that only could Jesus, only Jesus could do, with piercing conviction and the and the the moving of the Holy Spirit, he looks right at Nicodemus and he says, "Okay, Nicodemus, let me tell you something. Unless you're born again, you'll never see God." Now, notice what happens next. There's a couple things that happen. There's something that happens twice. In verse number four, Nicodemus responds, and Nicodemus says. How can a man be born when he's old? He's getting all confused. He's like, I'm going to get back into my mother's womb here? What, what, how is this going to work? Verse 5, Jesus answers, verily, verily. He says, except a man is born of water and the Spirit cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In verse number 7, he says, Nicodemus, don't be so surprised. Marvel not. In other words, Nicodemus, you should understand this. That I said you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus, verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto to him, what's the next thing? What's the word? Remember what he started with back in verse number 2? We know, we know, and now twice, the ruler, the teacher, the one who is so self-assured is perplexed. 
He's stumped. He's uncertain. How can these things be? In verse number 10, Jesus says, again, Jesus is not being super patient with him at this moment. Jesus is he's being a little, a little harsh at the beginning. Jesus answered unto him and said, Art thou a master of Israel? And you don't know these things? You don't understand this, Nicodemus? And now I can't get inside Nicodemus' head. I can only imagine that for the first time in his life, Nicodemus has come up against somebody that's smarter than him. Nicodemus has come up against someone who's more spiritual than he is. For the first time in his life, Nicodemus is beginning to doubt what he knows about God. Do you not know these things? Nicodemus's confidence is being deconstructed. And the good news is this. Jesus is about to paint the path to new creation, to gospel creation. There's two more verses in Romans that we need to finish, and then we'll come back to see our friend Nicodemus. Back in Romans 2, verse 28, Paul is going to speak about this gospel new creation. Once we get it out of our minds that we inherit an identity or we define who we are in our lives, he comes back in verse 28 and he says this. Romans chapter 2, in verse 28, Paul says this, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is the Jew, which is one, what? Inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter. Whose praise is not of men. It's not about this crowd. It's not about this crowd. It's about an audience of one. It's about transformation. He says it's not an outward conformity. It's an inward transformation. Now, this is not the first time that the circumcision of the heart is spoken of. We won't look at all of the passages, but I gave them to you for your own personal study. Deuteronomy 10.16. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. Jeremiah 4 and verse in the Old Testament, God challenges his people. Don't just rest in the fact that you are circumcised Jews, but circumcise your hearts. Have a heart that's dedicated to God. Paul would say it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in flesh. None. And Nicodemus is about to understand this. Back to our friend Nicodemus. How does Jesus finish it with him? So now, for the first time in his life, Nicodemus is questioning. Nicodemus has someone in front of him saying, you're supposed to know these things. You're a teacher of the law. You're supposed to be the guide. You're supposed to know this. And Nicodemus is like, but I don't know. I, I'm totally lost. I'm, I'm, I'm baffled. 
unpause, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak what we, that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Why is Jesus speaking in the plural? Yeah, I'm one with the Father, one with the Spirit. Jesus, and Nicodemus, I think, knows this. He says, you've come from God. Nick, Jesus is helping him understand that he is God. Verse 12, I have told you earthly things, and, yeah, and you believe not. How shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Really simply, he's blowing Nicodemus' mind, and he's saying, I didn't come from the natural realm, I came from the heavenly realm. And he says, Nicodemus, do you remember that old story in the Old Testament where Moses picked up a serpent and everybody that was bitten could look and be healed? Do you remember that? Well, in the same way, me, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Give me back me up. I know you're having a hard time keeping up where I'm going. Verse 15. Verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have ever life, everlasting life. For God, say it with me, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says, Nicodemus, a new identity comes from a new birth. It ha you have to be reborn. You have to be born again. In Romans 2, that's the crowd Paul is talking to. He says, your view of yourself isn't enough. That's all got to come down so that you can be born again. And Jesus says that the new birth comes by what? New birth comes by believing. Comes by believing. That whosoever believeth in him. It starts with God's love. That God was so gracious, so loving. The good news of the gospel to give his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But that's where we normally finish. There's two more really important verses for this that follow. Verse 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to what? Oh, that's right. Stop being so condemnational. He sent his Son that the world would be saved. That's right, I don't want to hear any messages of condemnation because God's message is not a message of condemnation. That's right, do you know why it's not a message of condemnation? Because verse number 18 says this, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is what? Condemned already. People can say, this is my identity. This is my identity. It doesn't matter which one. Because the fact is, in this world, the reason this world is broken is because every man, woman, boy, and girl is born into this world with an identity that is under judgment. It is under condemnation. That's why no matter how many times you reinvent yourself, 
no matter how many times you try to be more faithful to the expectations, no matter how hard a person works at self-improvement or, or relational improvement, no matter how many times you work at all of those things, it's never going to work because you have inherited the identity as I did. I inherited the identity of condemnation. The reason the message of Jesus See, Jesus didn't come to say, hey, you're all condemned. The fact is, that is the default setting of humanity. That's why there's so much pain and suffering in the world. Because we are a race of condemned men and women. So Jesus didn't come to preach that message of condemnation. He came and he said, I offer you an escape. I offer you salvation. I offer you forgiveness. And I offer you a brand new identity. That you are no longer this group, you are no longer this person, now you are a child of God through faith in Christ. Now friends, if you're a Christian in this room, can you say amen? If you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that is your identity. You belong to Him. So now live like it. Walk out of this room Walk out of this room and say, I'm a child of God. I am a new creature in Christ. Brother Evan shared with us some of the, some of the even things in his own life where his old identity was coming back a little bit to him. And he said, you know what? No, no, Lord, that's not who I am any longer. You're going to wrestle with that for years and years and years as a Christian. But you just got to always remember that it's the, if the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to wash your sin away, if the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Jesus is enough to give you new life, then there's nothing that can change that. And you are not under the power of any other habit, lifestyle, past, or anything. You're free in Christ. We are free in Christ. But there might be somebody in here. There might be somebody that listens to this message and you've not traded in your old life for the new life. There might be somebody here that says, you know what, I come to church, I'm religious, I do all the things. But have you ever gotten to the point in your life where you said, who I am at my core? Remember that foundational understanding, how I relate to others, how I'm broken. There's a Bible word for that. It's called, I'm a sinner. I'm condemned. But Jesus would set me free, and he only asks one thing of you. He doesn't ask you, everybody else, every religion, every traditional person will say, well, you've got to shape up, shape up, shape up. Every modern progressive person will say, hey, you've got to find some new truth and live without that truth. Everybody in the world is going to say, Perform a different way, and you'll find a new identity. But Jesus says this, I've done the performing. I've done the work. All you have to do is receive what I've done for you. It's only, only about receiving. Man, woman, teenager, have you come to terms with who you are and what Christ has done? If you never have, make today the day that you repent of your sin and you claim a new identity through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, Ethan, how do I do it? Very simple. Very simple. We read it in John 3.16. One word. Believe. Do I have to pray? Do I have to come forward? Do I have to... No. You don't have to do any of those things. The praying can help you. If you'll pray to God and tell Him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe I'm a sinner. 
I believe you died and rose again for me. And I believe you to save me. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Would you bow your heads, please? Quiet time of prayer right now. This is our time to respond to the word of God. So I just ask you to give full attention in this quiet moment. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, if there's never been a time in your life where you have believed on the name of Jesus, I want to ask you to do it right now. Right where you sit, young or old, right where you sit, if there is any doubt in your mind, do not, do not gamble with condemnation when there's a free offer of eternal life on the table. In your seat right now, just call out to Jesus. You could, you could pray a prayer something like this. You could say, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe you died and rose for me. I trust you to save me. Please save me, Jesus. If you'll do that right now, the Bible says you trade your old life for a new life in Christ. Would you do that right now? Christian, you're saved. You said amen earlier. You're like, yeah, that's me. I'm a child of God. What is defining your life? Are you defined by your career? Are you defined by your family? Are you de being defined by some insecurity? Or are you saying, I am a blood-bought child of God? Are you living in victory? As the piano plays right now, let's just have a time of prayer. Speak to the Lord. Give him your love. Give him your devotion. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. We're praying together right now. Each of us prays together. And God, we just ask that you would just move among this body of believers. God, I believe that you have a purpose for us. Lord, you've given us new life in Christ, and it's not just for ourselves, it's for us to reach this world. So please help us. God, help us to be who you say we are. Help us to live in your power. Help us to live with your purpose. Most of all, God, help us to leave just dedicated to your glory. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you in our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.